a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies and today we're going to talk about VBACs. This is great for people that are looking to have a VBAC, for people who don't even know what a VBAC is, as well as birth workers. And we have Jen Camel from founder of VBAC Vax to talk with us. Let me tell you a little more about Jen. Jen Camel helps birth professionals and cesarean parents achieve clarity on vaginal birth after cesarean, VBAC, through educational courses, training programs, and consulting services. As a nationally recognized consumer advocate and founder of VBAC Facts, her mission is to increase VBAC access through education, legislation, and amplifying consumer voice. She presents grand rounds at hospitals educating staff on the latest VBAC evidence. As a California Board of Registered Nursing Continued Education Provider, she speaks at national conferences throughout the country. As a legislative consultant, she works with organizations focusing on midwifery legislation and regulations that threaten VBAC access. Jen envisions a time when every pregnant person seeking VBAC has access to unbiased information, respectful providers, and community support so they can plan the birth of their choosing in the setting they desire. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Massimo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Jen. How are you? Excellent. So excited to be here with you today. Thank you. I am thrilled to speak with you. I have heard you on other podcasts. I've rummaged around your site for quite a while. I get your newsletters. So I am thrilled to jump into this topic. It's an important topic and I, I want to really give it some time and wait. So before we get into kind of some of the details about VBAC, can you just talk about what got you on the path about being so passionate about supporting VBAC? Well, you know, I was one of those millions of moms who 
ended up having a C-section and was completely surprised to find myself in that situation. I was planning an unmedicated hospital birth with a certified nurse midwife here in Southern California, and my pregnancy's moving along, everything's fine. And towards the end, we're noticing that she's transverse, and my midwife is like, you know, odds are she'll be head down, it'll be fine. Well, I was one of those three to 4% that were breach at term and had a C-section and had a rough recovery and knew I really didn't want to do that again. But when I went out into the world, my friends and family were like, why would you ever even consider that? Isn't it really dangerous? Whereas my OB told me, hey, you're a great candidate for VBAC. You had a C-section for a breach. There's no reason why you couldn't do it. And so that is where my journey really began. And I'm naturally a curious person. Like anytime I'm out to dinner with someone and they're like, I heard blah, blah, blah. Or isn't this true? I'm always on Google looking it up because I just want to know. That's just who I am. So from my experience, melding that with my personality, VBAC Facts was born, and it has grown into an incredible resource for not only parents, but birth professionals all across the world. That's great. Yeah, as I mentioned, I have been on there several times because I've had students say, oh, my care provider said this. Is this true? And similarly, if I'm ever approached with an answer I don't know, I love research. So I think we're kindred spirits in that. And so I have found your website really helpful. So I guess we should also back up a little bit and explain what is a VBAC? I know. So VBAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean. And that stands for someone who had a C-section in a prior birth and wants to plan a vaginal birth in a subsequent C-section and subsequent birth. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are some reasons someone might be discouraged from having a VBAC? And are these reasons medically justified? Well, there are a lot of reasons why people are discouraged from having a VBAC. But I would say the primary one is their doctor just tells them no one does that. And that's why it's really important for parents to be advocates for themselves and to go out and learn as much as possible before they go and talk with their providers. So that way they understand the language, they understand what is a reasonable response and what isn't a reasonable response. And so for most people, it's because they're told it's not possible. A lot of people have a real lack of social support. If their partner's not on board or their family isn't on board, they may not be up for dealing with that contentiousness their entire pregnancy. I've seen that. In fact, I'm sure you've heard these stories kind of, I call it the bait and switch. I remember being at a birth as a doula and the client had planned for a VBAC the whole time. And when she was finally in labor, that at that time, the care provider's like, I really think we should have a C-section. And when she said, I thought we talked about a VBAC, I thought we were on board, he made her actually sign um, a waiver saying, you know, going against my medical advice. Do you see that kind of stuff or hear that kind of stuff happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, VBAC is not only the birth of a baby, but it's also a highly political decision. And there's a lot of different factors out there that transform true facts into what parents are actually told, which is often not reflecting of evidence and national guidelines. So how would someone advocate for themselves? Would you recommend they come in with some information to have that conversation? What are your thoughts? 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, at the very least, people should be reading ACOG's 2017 VBAC guidelines. And if you just Google that, up will come an article. I actually wrote two articles about those latest guidelines, what I liked about them and what I didn't like. And there's a lot to like. And there's a few things where I think ACOG really missed the mark. But in both of those articles, I link you to the original guidelines. So you can go download those, read read through them, and that will give you a great quick overview of the evidence. So when your provider or when who you're interviewing says, well, ACOG says XYZ, you have it right in front of you. And you can be very clear what ACOG says and what they don't say. So that's like the fundamental thing that you can do. So I'm going to put you on the spot if, if it's okay. Do you remember the things that you liked and didn't like? Oh, gosh. Um, well, one of the things I didn't like is that three separate times ACOG refers to providers using a, uh, VBAC calculators. And there's a lot of problems with the VBAC calculator. Um, one of them is that it asks if you've had a prior cesarean for failure to progress. Well, there are strict criteria that patients must meet in order to actually receive a genuine FTP diagnosis. But as with many things in maternity care, that label is applied to people who don't necessarily meet those qualifications. And when you later put into the VBAC calculator that you had a cesarean for FTP, it gives you a major ding on your estimated VBAC odds. So that's just one example. It also really dings women of color. Um, and so there's a variety of different issues with the VBAC calculator. And so I think it's really problematic that ACOG references providers using that to estimate VBAC success rates three different times, because that's not an evidence-based um, decision. And a lot of doctors don't understand all the factors that go into the VBAC calculator and all the ways that those that information can be skewed. And then how is that information going to be used? I mean, if you if the VBAC calculator says that a parent has a 40% chance of a VBAC, how is that number explained to the parent by the provider? Well, also and so, the failure to progress, that can be so varied in itself. Well, you know, exactly. Yeah. You know, because I've seen a fair amount of women say, oh, well, I only got to three centimeters, only got to four centimeters. And from the research I've been doing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of doctors are saying, don't make this decision until someone's in active labor, which is now considered six centimeters along. So people are getting this failure to progress without really having the snowball rolling in active labor. Exactly. And that's one of the qualifications that ACOG gives for an actual FTP diagnosis is you have to be at least six centimeters dilated. So that's an excellent example of how someone can get this diagnosis, get this label. And then when a provider plugs the FTP diagnosis into a VBAC calculator, it, it's going to say, oh, you don't have great odds. But the reality was that diagnosis was never true to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of those intricacies that unless you know that that's even out there, you can be really um, discouraged by the VBAC calculator. And unless a provider really goes through all those intricacies, which they may or may not have the time to do, it can be really confusing what those numbers really mean. And what else is going, I love the VBAC calculator, I hadn't, hadn't heard that. What else is being plugged into figuring out the odds besides if failure to progress or reason that someone had a VBAC the first time or had a cesarean the first time? 
um, if they've had a prior vaginal delivery. Now, that is a great indicator of VBAC success. I mean, if you've had a prior vaginal delivery before your C-section or since your C-section, those VBAC rates go up to about 80%. So that's one of those, those examples of a good thing in the VBAC calculator. But the overall challenge with the VBAC calculator is that people are not like computers. You don't just like plug in a few numbers and you get the computer to do something, you know, write in a line of code and execute and the computer goes off and does that. People are more complex and there's a lot of different factors that go into VBAC success and how VBACs play out and how labors play out in general that just aren't encompassed in the VBAC calculator. So we have to, whenever we use tools like that, they can be really helpful, but they can also be harmful. And unless you understand the science behind those tools, and unless you're able to convey to your patient how those tools are used and what they're good for and what they're not, they can really be misleading. So hospitals believe that in order to offer VBAC, you have to have what's called immediately available coverage. So sometimes that's defined as an obstetrician being of present 24-7, and other times it's defined as an anesthesiologist being present 24-7. And ACOG has said in the past that while that is ideal, that is certainly not a requirement and never should parents be in a position where, they're, where they are forced to have a repeat C-section because of hospital policy? So ACOG said that back in 2010. Well, hospitals still maintain, well, we need immediately available. We need 24-7 anesthesia. And what ACOG and the NIH have seen is that hospitals across the country are telling parents, you have no options here. You have to have a repeat C-section. You cannot have a VBAC. It is unsafe. But the truth is, if a hospital has an LND unit, they have emergency protocols in place to respond to, say, a cord prolapse and a first-time parent. So those same policies and procedures would, would be activated in the event of a uterine rupture. So hospitals have the capability of responding to an emergency, and if they don't, they should not be offering labor and delivery, period. That's a so really great point. Well, yeah. And so ACOG came out in 2017 and made it even more clear. And they said, okay, if you are a level one hospital that offers labor and delivery, you need to offer VBAC. Now, they use this language. It's great language. But I really think ACOG should have gone a step further. I think ACOG should have said hospitals cannot have VBAC bans. It is unethical to lead parents to believe that they don't have options. It is unethical and violates patient autonomy and could very well be illegal to be forcing parents into repeat cesareans and telling them that they don't have the option of a VBAC because of these restrictive policies. I wish ACOG said that. It's certainly the sentiment in their guidelines, but they don't use language like that. But although they are clear that no one should be forced to have a C-section. Yeah, that's fantastic information because I do hear a lot of people say um, smaller hospitals are not equipped. They may not have anesthesia ready, but you're right. What if someone's this regular LND, you know, and everything's going well, then it doesn't. You know, clearly they do have something ready. So that's a great kind of loophole that you just closed up. So let's talk a little bit about some of the myths and mis myths and misconceptions surrounding VBACs. Well, one of the big ones is that VBAC is just really dangerous. And in order to counter that, you have to have a little bit more context. 
So to have a little bit of context, we need to understand that in first-time parents, the need for or the potential to need an emergency cesarean is there. And so the risk of a first-time parent needing an emergency cesarean from like a placental abruption or a cord prolapse or a shoulder dystocia is similar to the risk of uterine rupture in a person who's had a prior cesarean. So when we talk about risk, it's important to look at things like that. It's not like your risk is like close to zero without a prior cesarean, and then it just shoots up. There are always risks of um, danger in labor, but those risks are small, and odds are you're going to be fine. So that's one of the examples of when we talk about VBAC, how people think VBAC is dangerous, but really we just need to understand what is the risk and how does it compare to a first-time parent? Well, I love what you said about comparing it to Uh, other situations like emergency C-sections, I think certain numbers can be played up in certain situations, uh, can be played up by either family or care providers or where people are reading this of the risk goes up if X, Y, and Z. And it's almost as downplaying that there is risk in general. As you said, there's risk in everything. But again, I think it's how it's presented and comparing it to the other numbers that I don't think people take into consideration. Absolutely. Well, and that's why it's so important for when parents go in and talk to providers, for them to have information under their belt so they are able to identify um, things that their provider says that may not ring true or might make them think of something else they read. And they can actually engage in an intelligent conversation about VBAC rather than just being a recipient of information. I mean, we all want to be active in our medical care. We all want to understand what are our options and what are the risks and benefits in order for you to make an informed decision? And you see, you mentioned um, the uterine rupture situation. I know some care providers, they won't start an induction if it's a VBAC, but I've seen some give little bits of pit with, an in, with a VBAC. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, induction is an option per the American College of OBGYNs, even if you've had a prior cesarean. And oh, from that's scratch? Because, they, they start, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because there are situations where the baby needs to be born sooner rather than later, but not necessarily in the next 10 minutes. If it's the next 10 minutes, you're going to go have an emergency C-section. But if it's a situation where, okay, we need to get this baby born, it might, it could be in the next 12 to 24 hours. And the options are induction or go straight to C-section. And so that's where the parent and the provider can have a discussion about, okay, well, in your particular situation, here are the risks of you remaining pregnant with whatever condition is going on with you. Here are the risks and benefits of having an induction. And here are the risks and benefits of just going and having a C-section. And so that's where the parent just needs to decide, okay, well, which which bucket of risks and benefits are tolerable to me. Well, you just busted one of my myths that I thought I was, <laughs> and I like it. You're a little myth buster. Um, so yeah, I, at least the practice I happen to see a lot of the practices in New York city is very few of, I haven't seen any start, uh, induction from, um, Cervidil and then start from Pitocin. I've seen them just kind of edge along a labor already in progress, but mm-hmm. I haven't. So maybe that's just something, maybe that's changed. Um, and so I haven't been to births in a while, but from my knowledge, that was kind of something people were saying, you know, I'll give you until 41 weeks and so-and-so days, and then it's going to have to be a C-section because we don't induce with VBAC. So, Thank you for sharing that. Are there other myths or misconceptions that we want to bring up about VBACs? 
Well, and l- let me also give your audience more information about VBAC induction. If you go to vbacfacts.com backslash induce, you can read more about ACOG gui- ACOG's guidelines and the evidence on VBAC induction. So more myths. Well, the other myth is that VBAC is all risk and cesareans are risk-free. But the truth is, is that both have risks and benefits. And with VBAC, we're looking at the primary risk of uterine rupture. But with cesareans, the risk is often delayed. In that current pregnancy, you have the risk of hysterectomy, a increased risk of excessive bleeding. But in future pregnancies is where we see the really serious risks that are associated with cesareans. And those include things like placenta accreta. And when we look at uterine rupture versus placenta accreta, you're either accepting risk in the current pregnancy in uterine rupture, or you're delaying the risk for a future pregnancy with a repeat cesarean and accreta. And accreta is associated with a much higher rate of maternal mortality and a similar rate of of, uh, infant mortality and morbidity. And so that's a complication that a lot of parents are not told about, and they're not able to really give informed consent if they don't understand how will this decision to have a VBAC or repeat cesarean in this pregnancy impact my future birthing options. Oh, can you explain what placenta carita is for someone that's not um, well-versed in, in that issue? Sure. So after a baby is born, the placenta detaches from the uterine wall and comes out of the woman's body. In the event of a placenta accreta, the placenta abnormally attaches to the uterine wall. And so when the baby is born, the placenta does not detach. And what happens is it might partially detach, and then you have a a hemorrhage that occurs because the uterus is unable to clamp down and stop the bleeding because the placenta is still in there. And so Placenta accreta is associated with extremely high rates of uh, hemorrhage and blood transfusion, ICU admission, cesarean hysterectomies, as well as a 1 in 14 rate of maternal mortality. And that's a 7% risk. So that's a very high rate of maternal mortality. And most of those mortalities occur because of excessive blood loss. That's a, that's a huge number. Do you happen to know, and again, I'm kind of throwing this at you, what the percentage of women that end up having uterine rupture? I'm just wanting to do like a comparison of uterine rupture to accreta. So the NIH did a review back in 2010 on VBAC. And when they looked at maternal mortality from uterine rupture, they included eight different studies and not one reported a maternal mortality from uterine rupture. Now, it certainly happens, but in those studies that the ACOG, uh, that the NIH looked at, none of the mothers died. And they reported an overall maternal mortality rate from VBAC as 1 in 26,000. Okay, so the numbers are vastly different. Vastly that, Well, different. that's important. I mean, I, again, we're going back to coming up, coming into a, a conversation with the care provider with really solid numbers instead of just their experience. Do you know what the current VBAC rate is right now? Nationwide in America, it's about 11% overall. And and the C-section rate is about 33, I think. Oh gosh. Yeah. About there. All right. So, you know, not a ton of people are getting that. So just kind of going back to someone that's a good candidate, you talked about the 
the feedback calculator, which I'd never heard that term. So I'm kind of loving that. What else would, (laughs) I do, such a geek on these things. What else would make someone a good candidate? So if they're going into their care provider and they're saying, okay, only 11% are having a successful feedback, they really want to, how, what else can they say to their care provider to really try to get them on the table to have that? Well, I want to touch on the 11% number just real quick, because the 11% VBAC rate refers to the number of people who have a prior cesarean and have a VBAC that calendar year divided by all the people who have a prior cesarean and birthed that year. So it's not saying that of the people who wanted a VBAC, only 11% had one. That's a different, that's a different number. About 60 to 80% of people who plan a VBAC have a VBAC. But that 11% national VBAC rate for America reflects how few people have access to VBAC and how much misinformation is out there. Because so many parents are told, you've had a prior cesarean, you need to have another cesarean, and they say, okay, and they schedule their cesarean. And that is the, cons- that is the extent of the informed consent conversation. And so I wanna make sure that parents understand that the odds are in your favor Whether your odds are higher or lower depend on a variety of different factors. Um, People who are particularly great candidates for VBAC have a prior vaginal delivery and also have their cesarean for breach. So people who have those two factors are considered really great VBAC candidates. Now, there's a variety of other things. And, you know, some of these things are a little bit slippery, like FTP. You know, we have studies that show that if you had your cesarean for FTP, you have a lower VBAC rate in a subsequent pregnancy. But as we discussed earlier, that FTP diagnosis is not always applied accurately. And so a woman could say, well, my body doesn't work. My cervix didn't dilate, but maybe she had her C-section for FTP and she was four centimeters. Well, she didn't meet the criteria, but she already has that weighing on her heart of, oh, well, my body is broken. I couldn't do it. I ran out of time because of the language that was used when she had her C-section. What about someone that had something like previa and they didn't even, again, they couldn't have a vaginal birth? So I don't, I don't think someone who has a prior previa is considered a bad VBAC candidate. And also, I, you know, I want to be careful when we talk about, you know, who's a really good candidate versus mm-hmm. not so great of a candidate, because all of this is information to help parents understand what their options are. And so they can have informed decisions and informed conversations with their provider. Mm-hmm. But whether you have a high estimated VBAC rate or a low estimated VBAC rate, you're not going to know how your labor plays out until you're in the moment. Mm-hmm. And you you can have a VBAC calculator tell you, you have a 30% chance of having a VBAC. And then you go and you rock your VBAC because there's a lot of things that just aren't captured in the VBAC calculator and in these general discussions about VBAC um, suitability. Things like what's the position of the baby when the woman goes into labor? And how well is that baby able to maneuver through her body if she's upright and moving around or if she's told she has to lay in bed the whole time? So things like that can make a huge impact on how a labor plays out. As well as thinking about who's in her team, her birth posse. If if the first time she had a care provider that 
just didn't maybe she didn't feel supported by or felt intimidated by uh or maybe she was in a bad mental place the birthing woman all that's going to affect how her body opens so you're absolutely right we shouldn't just stick to the calculator but look at the bigger picture because she may now be more confident have done different things for her body maybe got chiropractic here to set that baby up in a good position so i'm glad that you commented that we don't want to be so black and white with good and bad candidate Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things. There are things that we can see and there are things that we can measure. And there's a lot of things that we can't see and we can't measure. And there's a lot of things that just happen in the moment that can impact whether your labor goes one way or another. And so it's just important to keep that in mind that you can do all of this planning and you can either be, you know, what's considered a really great candidate or a not so great candidate but it's not until you're in labor are you going to know how things play out. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about if someone is anxious about having a VBAC and they go for a cesarean. Is there anything you want to talk about the impact of the rising cesarean rate on women's health? Well, we are seeing increasing rates in California. We're seeing increasing rates of excessive bleeding, cesarean hysterectomy, and placenta accreta because of all of the repeat cesareans that are done nationwide. of people with a prior cesarean have a repeat cesarean. And when we see all of these complications that are associated with repeat cesareans, and we have hundreds and thousands of them happening every year, we see more and more of these situations where you have parents dying from accreta because the facility is not capable of responding to accreta. We talk about hospitals that need to have a certain setup for uterine rupture. Well, accreta requires an even more complex and sophisticated response. And parents really need to understand that when you schedule that repeat cesarean, that does increase risks in your future pregnancy, regardless of how you plan a VBAC or repeat cesarean. And that's information they often do not get from their doctor. That's important because I think... Oftentimes, cesareans deemed as the safest route, and I don't think the risks, as you mentioned, some of them are often discussed, and and people just don't have it in their in their mind. They think surgery equals best because you know it's expensive and it's surgery, and therefore everyone will be happy and healthy at the end. But that's not necessarily the case. So, if someone is wanting to have a VBAC, is there anything they should keep in mind when interviewing the care provider? Any red flags they should keep? Uh, keep on the front of their mind? Well, I think anytime you're interviewing a provider, it's really important to just use open-ended questions and just have them talk. Don't give them a question where they can give a yes or no answer because that doesn't give you a whole lot of great information. And I actually have a list of questions for parents up at vbacfacts.com backslash questions, which will give you an entire list of all the questions that I think are most important to ask. But I can give you a few here now. Yes, please. The number one is, of the last 10 people who came to you wanting a VBAC, how many actually had a VBAC? Now, we talked about how about 60 to 80% of people who plan a VBAC have one. So that would be six to eight people out of 10. So if they're telling you, well, four or five, you're going to want to inquire, so what happened? Because some providers say that they're supportive of VBAC, but then conveniently, everyone gets risked out towards the end. So that is definitely something to ask. And then ask them things like, how do you feel about VBAC with a big baby? How do you feel about VBAC going beyond 40 weeks? 
or VBAC with an unknown scar, if that's what you have. ACOG addresses all of those things in their guidelines, and I dive even deeper into them, into my online trainings for parents and professionals, walking them through the research. So you really understand what exactly are the numbers and counter that against what you're being told. So what do you think, so the one that I encountered, as I mentioned um, years ago, it was two things. She went past 40 weeks and she did have an, uh, a different, an unknown scar that she had had her first cesarean back in Germany a, a number of years ago and they didn't have necessarily all the records. So how would someone, should they just try to find a care provider that gives more definitive answers? What do you, how, how can someone work with that scenario? Well, in that specific situation, I mean, ACOG is clear that going beyond 40 weeks should not prevent a woman from planning a VBAC. So right there, I mean, that's what they say. And if you want to dive into the evidence, I, I absolutely have those um, that information available for people at vbacfacts.com backslash courses. But the other issue about unknown scars. So ACOG also says that women with an unknown scar are still a candidate for VBAC. And that's because the overwhelming majority of cesareans that occur in the United States are low transverse cesareans. In the event of a preterm birth or some other complication, they might need to have a classical incision, which is up in the upper part of the uterus and it's a vertical or up and down scar. Now in Germany, I don't know what the practices are there. I'm, I would think that they would be doing low transverse scars. And unless there was some reason to believe that she, um, needed something other than a low transverse scar based on her recollection of the surgery. I mean, that's, that goes into an area of unknown risk. Well, it was actually, it was a low bikini scar, but they kept saying they didn't know the stitch. Was it, a, I think if I remember correctly, oh. like a double stitch or a single stitch, that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's another area where there's a lot of misinformation. Some providers swear that a single layer suture on the uterus is superior. Others say dual layer. But when we look at the evidence, the evidence is quite inconclusive. And single versus dual layer suturing is an area where there's a lot of other variables at play, not just how many layers is the uterus stitched. The other thing to keep in mind is that when we look at ACOG's guidelines, they make absolutely no reference about sutures closure style. So the idea of risking someone out or telling them they're at an elevated risk when we have inconclusive evidence is not being entirely um, transparent. That's good to know because if different care providers have different ways in which they stitch and then someone moves, then all of a sudden they might feel like they're being ruled out just because their old care provider had a way of doing things. So I'm glad that we're covering that. So we have covered a lot, (laughs) which I love. Um, What am I missing that you feel people need to know about VBACs? Well, I think overwhelming, people need to know one thing. ACOG says that VBACs are a safe, reasonable, and appropriate option for most people with one prior cesarean and for some people with two prior cesareans. And also notably, ACOG does not put any upper limit on the number of prior cesareans. I didn't know that. I've heard so many students say, oh, I've had two cesareans. I would love to try a VBAC. My care provider won't do that. So really kind of whatever, if they just have to find a care provider that will, there's no guidelines. Is that what you're saying? Well, there's a contrast between what ACOG says and what the evidence says and what parents actually hear. And what you just said is a great illustration of that. So um, ACOG does not put an upper limit. How providers, um, how different providers practice 
reflects a variety of different factors that impact their practice style. But it's always good if you are a higher order uh, VBAC to ask around in your community. Now, the thing you have to keep in mind is that the more C-sections you have, there are greater risks and you get into an area of unknown risk. We don't know what the risk of uterine rupture is after three or four C-sections. We just don't know. So you have to really go inside yourself and decide what is tolerable to you. Some people say, I absolutely want to do it. And other people say, I'm not real comfortable with an unknown level of risk. Mm -hmm. So that's where you just have to have an honest conversation with your provider about the research and about what is tolerable to you because different people are going to have different answers. Yeah, I guess it's just weighing the risk versus benefit. That made me think of a scenario years and years ago. I wasn't actually the doula for this situation. My friend was. It was a home birth VBAC. What are your thoughts on that? Well, with every option, there are risks and there are benefits. And that is present in home birth as well. And there's a lot of different factors that impact why someone would look into a home birth. One of those being they may not even have the option of hospital birth in their community. All of their hospitals might ban VBAC. So what is someone to do? Some people say, well, you should travel. Well, that's wonderful for people who have the means to travel and for people who have that flexibility in their job and their personal life to be able to travel three or four hours for a VBAC. There are certainly people who do that, but that is not an option for a lot of families. And so you have to make decisions based on what's available to you. And some people plan an out-of-hospital VBAC. There's a lot of things to consider with that. But I absolutely believe that people should have access to that option. Will you go into some of the things to consider for that? Well, um, there's a whole host of things. I mean, one of the things is looking at um, the proximity to a hospital to transfer to. If you are in a rural area and you're two hours away from a hospital, I mean, that's a higher level of risk than when you are having an out-of-hospital VBAC and you're a few blocks away. Mm -hmm. So that's just one thing to consider. Okay, that's good. I'm glad because, yeah, I was I remember that birth. And I remember my friend and I talking about after, and it it was rough. And at one point, my friend who was the doula called me. She's like, we're going on like 20 hours and not looking so good. And the woman ended up pushing for a long time. So we were both nervous about the situation. So it turned out, you know, baby was born, but it was, it was a rough, rough birth. So thanks for giving some Mm. information on that one. So what final tips can you offer for those really curious about trying to have a VBAC? Well, I think the first place you should start is at vbacfacts.com. I have oodles of resources and information for parents who think like me. And those are, and The type of parent that thinks like me is someone who wants to have the actual information, is not satisfied with what your aunt says or your mother says or your sister says. You actually want to understand what are the facts. And that's where I came from. And that's what I provide for parents and professionals. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic site. And so let's talk a little bit about some of your latest projects and if you have some speaking events or trainings. Well, right now I am launching this week as we're recording the VBAC Facts membership site for professionals, and I am super excited about it because up to this point, professionals have been able to get up to date quickly on the evidence with my course, The Truth About VBAC for Professionals. But the challenge was always, how do they stay current? People just don't have the time to cull through the research every month and look at all, all the relevant research that's been published, read it all, check out the methodology, see if it's a strong study or 
or not, and then combine all that information and integrate it into their practice. It's a very labor-intensive job, and anyone who has gone and actually read research understands how labor-intensive it is. And so I looked at that and I thought, what can I do to help these professionals who want to stay on top of the evidence but don't have a lot of time to do so? So I created the VBAC Facts Membership for Professionals. And what I'll be offering in this membership site is online monthly grand rounds where I will go through all the research and give you a summary of what has been published, what's strong, what isn't, and what do you need to know. Also, monthly expert interviews from people in the field talking about variety of factors that are relevant to those involved in maternity care, a monthly Q&A call with me where you can ask whatever random question is on your mind about VBAC, home birth, repeat cesareans, accreta, uterine rupture, hospital policy, ACOG guidelines, and then also access to all of my existing online courses, as well as any future courses I develop, and access to my patient handout series on VBAC and all future handouts that I develop. And so I'm super excited. It's going to be an incredible community. And people can learn more by going to vbacfacts.com backslash membership. Well, this sounds, you say it's for professionals, but this sounds like it could be really useful for just the average pregnant person. Well, it could be useful for the average pregnant person. I am gearing it towards professionals because it's not a VBAC 101 class. It's Mm -hmm. more for people who already have a good amount of training and understanding under their belt. So, yeah, I guess it depends on how how geeked out someone's going to get about their research for for themselves. Um, So do you also have a free gift for our listeners? I do. You can go to vbacfacts.com backslash report and download my free report on uterine rupture myths, the five most prevalent myths that I have seen in online message boards, as reported to me from L&D units, as well as exam rooms. So what are the top five myths that people believe and what is the actual truth? Well, you can learn at vbacfacts.com backslash report. And that's great because then someone can go into their care provider with the facts and say, this is what I've learned. Let's have a conversation about it. And if something's not medically justified, it's harder to justify why someone can't have a VBAC. Absolutely. And I also recommend rather than fighting with your provider, if you can change, that is ideal. Yes. Because you don't want to be in a position where you're in labor and you're debating. And you're negotiating because that's not the time. Exactly. <laughs> not the time. No, we need, we need mama to focus on getting that baby out and being in her birth space. Well, thank you so much. I love your website. I enjoy you know, looking through and finding information to share with the, with the community. So thank you for putting your time, effort, and talent into that. My pleasure. It is the joy that I have to be able to do this work. I absolutely love it. Thank you. Enjoy your day. You too. Take care. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.